There are not really very well prepared positions behind those immediate front lines. Unfortunately, the Ukrainian soldiers uh, were pushed back and they didn't really have anywhere to take shelter except for some cellars in a destroyed village. There is no better way to hide from the artillery and also drone attacks, which has really intensified from Russia's side, than, than a trench. I mean, there is very little you can do when you're hammered by artillery. How come something so crucial was missed? Like, why did this happen? How could Ukrainian leadership not see this beforehand? It's about optics. They never said the counteroffensive was over. Hi everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Cuban Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Francis Farrell to talk about Ukraine's failure to prepare for the long defensive war against Russia. Francis, welcome. Good morning. Before we go on, I'll ask you guys to please subscribe to The Cave Independent wherever you're listening to the show, whether that's on YouTube or on audio platforms. Leave reviews, comments, likes, whatever the feedback. It takes just a few seconds for you, but goes a really long way for us because that is what happens to platforms like YouTube and others promoter show so more people will stay informed about Ukraine. So, Francis, you are one of our main war reporters and you very closely follow the fighting on the front line all the time. And recently your sources have been telling you that the Ukrainian leadership has basically failed to prepare for this new stage that we have um, in Russia's war against Ukraine, where Ukraine is expected to be in a defensive position for a very long time now. So what exactly have soldiers and commanders been telling you? So there are two separate problems here and they're, they're separate, but they're also connected and they also in a way show symptoms of, of the same issue overall. First of all, of course, there's the front line trenches themselves. So if you imagine the front line with artillery and, and, and drones constantly flying around, the actual zero line positions are often very, very makeshift, you know, holes in the ground, basically, little ditches and, and trenches. And if they have time, they can maybe dig a dugout and, and prepare it a bit. But that, that's all they've got because that area is being mashed up constantly, especially in the most intense parts of the front line, for example, Bakhmut or Avdivka. And unfortunately, what an issue that we see, and I've heard from, from my sources, including soldiers who fight in those front line positions and commanders who see a bit of the bigger picture is that there are not really very well-prepared positions behind those immediate frontline trenches. And so, and that's not the case everywhere. It's not universal, but unfortunately, you know, people told me that that was a big problem in Avdiivka right now, for example, on the northern flank where Russia has been pushing incredibly hard in recent times. And in the first few days of that offensive, they took the first hundred meters or so, they took those first frontline positions. And unfortunately, the Ukrainian soldiers were pushed back and they didn't really have anywhere to take shelter except for some cellars in a destroyed village. And so they're still holding that area. So that's testament to how, how well these guys are actually fighting. But, you know, digging saves lives and digging holds the line. And if you can dig well and, and dig systematically and consciously, then, then you, you have much better chances in defensive battles in places like Avdivka. But then we have the strategic 
picture, the big picture, because we see now, you know, we've had these grim discussions for here about how, okay, the counteroffensive seems to have ended in, in more or less a failure. And now Russia has taken the initiative, not just in Avdivka, but around Skupiansk in the north, around Bakhmut and around Marinka. And so with military and financial support for Ukraine now being under threat in the US and in the EU as well, um, you know, I think country has slowly come to this overall realization that we could be spending a lot of time in defense and we could be defending with a lot less ammunition and weapons than we've been used to in in recent times and that brings us to the point of well why hasn't ukraine prepared for that kind of long defensive war and what is it exactly that we should have done well what does this kind of preparation look like well, again, it's about digging. It's about protecting your soldiers on the front line, especially the infantry. Those are the ones who always take the, the most losses by building fortified defensive lines. It's pretty simple, like like several multi-layered layers of trenches, anti-tank ditches, even these dragon's teeth, these concrete pyramids, you can use them, concrete reinforced bunkers, underground systems, just basically prepare the front line to defend in a much better position. We know the defender usually has an advantage against an attacker in this kind of warfare but it also depends on on where these guys are sitting are they sitting in small shallow holes in the ground or have they got really nicely prepared defensive lines and then ideally and this is all written out in in soviet doctrine by the way and ideally behind the first complex line of defense and this is all a couple of kilometers behind the actual zero line positions you've got your first line and then you've got another one maybe That's defense in depth yeah maybe 10 5 10 15 kilometers beyond that and if you really want you can dig a third one that's that's been proven throughout history to be to be effective and we we have this war that is still very similar to this kind of grinding world war 1 style tactics and and that's just very obviously what ukraine needs to do and i'm not just saying this cuz i came up with it it's experts commanders everyone's looking around and like well what what's going on and i think this is especially important given the huge artillery advantage that russia has right because there is no better way to hide from the artillery and also drone attacks, which has really intensified from Russia's side, than, than a trench. I mean, there is very little you can do when you're hammered by artillery other than hide in a trench. Yes, Russia has an artillery advantage, but now they also, unfortunately, everyone says the same thing. They have an advantage in these FPV suicide drones as well. Some have reported that it could be even like two, three, five to one in these drones, and those are precision weapons. So they're a bit more dangerous because they can even, you know, be flown right into trenches and bunkers. But then again, that's even more reason to prepare in advance. You know, if you need to come up with some new solutions, with, which both sides are already doing in terms of putting like nets over your trench to protect from FPV drones, well then fine. But that's again, work that needs to be done in preparation for being on the defensive. And this obviously stands in very stark contrast with Russia, right? Because we've, we've talked so many times on this podcast about how extremely fortified their positions are. And that turned out to be like 
the main problem with the counteroffensive, right? We had those stereotypes about the dumb Russian military in the first months of the war, and they still have a lot of issues, of course. It would be weird to pretend not to, but when it comes to fortifications and defenses and this grand strategy aspect of it, they were very smart and and they saw the counteroffensive coming in advance. So what they did was, starting in at the end of winter in this year, when so they, this is basically a year ago. Well, almost like around February, yeah, around February, when they were still attacking, attacking around Bakhmut and Vuglidar, they what they did was they already started building. Right. So, so they started building a whole like three, four, five months before the actual Ukrainian counteroffensive. They started building when the ground was soft. And they, yeah, planned these lines out. One, first, they were the frontline positions. Then you had kilometers of dense minefields, which proved to be crucial in stopping the initial push. Then you had one of these big fortified Suravikin lines, so the anti-tank ditches, the dragon's teeth, concrete bunkers, everything I just, I just talked about. And then he had another one behind that, another 10, 15 kilometers behind that. Key areas like strategic airfields or key cities like Tokmak. They had another line of fortifications going around them. So they prepared really, really well beforehand in advance and, and it worked, worked wonders. You know, we saw how horrible these minefields were and, and, and the way they stopped the initial counteroffensive push. And eventually the counteroffensive in Zaporizhia Oblast, it reached the first of these two lines. In some areas, there were even three of them, but they only reached the first one. They barely reached it, barely breached it, and, and they couldn't go any further. It's true. I remember um, when Russia was really on the offense, you know, around a year ago, half a year ago, it seemed like wherever they went, they would immediately start digging in. Like they would just capture, you know, a few kilometers of a particular town or, or a field or an area, and they would start digging. They would bring these engineers and a bunch of infantry to just dig these fortifications. They did that everywhere. It seems like they really you know, knew how to, how to defend properly yeah. and it works for them. And, and they're good at that. You know, soldiers tell me, look, you have to give it to them. You have to give credit to them. They are really good when it comes, when it comes to digging, they have these like sent like decades history of Soviet doctrine, which, which perfected this. Cause that's always how the Soviet union liked to fight as well. And they do have some benefits when it comes to Quick decision making, quick orders, straight down the power vertical. You know, you do this or you go to prison, you do this or you get shot. Um, I mean, it's a dictatorship, a brutal one. Yeah, so. you know, they can bring in t- uh, thousands of, of migrants or prison workers, so on. Sure. But, you know, it's not an excuse for Ukraine not to even start properly. So, so, so that's actually my next question. How come something seemingly as, as obvious as that, like you really don't have to be a military analyst to understand this idea of defending properly. How come something so crucial was missed? Like, why did this happen? How could Ukrainian leadership not see this beforehand? So, so there are a few like reasonable explanations to this. And I think they all play a little bit of a role in, in how we got here. The first one is, is clearly, I think, political. It's about optics because, you know, Zelensky and 
the Ukrainian leadership in general, they still have this very open commitment, right, to we are going to go forward, we're going to liberate all our territory. And so they never said the counteroffensive was over and they said there will be more in the future. But if you then start, you know, investing huge amounts of resources into fortifying the existing contact line, it's a pretty, I mean, the obvious conclusion, whether it's right or not, is that you probably don't really plan to, or you don't really have much hope in going forward again and liberating that territory. So that, you know, that might affect the the morale of, of Ukraine Ukrainians in the occupied territories and, and Ukrainians everywhere else, basically. And, and it kind of certainly conflicts with that, with that image. And then unfortunately, you also have the other problem that, you know, some of these lines, if you do them properly, they need to be built further and further back, maybe 10, 15, 20 kilometers further back. And there are whole Ukrainian cities which still have quite normal life. You know, you have Kupiansk is getting blown up, but you have, you know, cities like Toretsk, you have cities like Chasivyar, Konstantinivka, Siversk, and... and This is in the Donbass, in the east. In the east. And, And those, you know... It's also not not a great message message for the people living there when you see like trenches building being built through your city and behind your city. So it, it's really tough in that extent. And then there's also, of course, you know, this whole time there was a lot of probably wishful thinking that the counteroffensive would succeed and we'd be on a straight path to victory. But, you know, again, that's no excuse. You know, these people are qualified. They should have made the decision. But then it comes to the third reason, which is, well, who should make the decision? And and this is where, unfortunately, again, Ukraine perhaps, you know, suffers from not having this direct power vertical and where one person says you do this and, and they have to do it because unfortunately you have the military, for example, and that's not just Zaluzhny deciding everything. It's also the 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 generals in charge of different sectors of the front line. Mm-hmm. And then you have the brigade commanders and then you have the battalion commanders and you have the engineer corps. And so someone there needs to make the decision and act. But then, you know, the military itself doesn't actually have the, the resources to build these huge constructions deep in the rear. They're kind of busy fighting the war and, and you know, demining, mining, building the basic positions on the front line. So the military can't do it on their own. That needs to come from the political leadership. It needs to come from Zelensky, the cabinet of ministers. Who can devote resources to this problem, right? Yes. And unfortunately, we are in a time where we hear about reports of, you know, increasing increasing tension between the, the political and the military leadership, between Zelensky and Zeluzhny. It's not something we need to focus on here. But when you have this tangle of political responsibility, military responsibility, resources that need to be allocated, money that needs to be allocated, and and this overall kind of lack of effective communication perhaps between these two organs of, of, of Ukraine's leadership, then, uh, you know, it's not a good recipe for those quick, effective decisions. So where does that leave us? I mean, how does this delay and affect soldiers on the ground and then also the war more broadly? Sure. I mean, for soldiers on the ground, it's going to cost their lives. It's hard to quantify it. It's kind of impossible. But 
at the end of the day, it's digging that saves lives. When you're on the defensive, when the enemy has such an advantage in artillery and drones, the preparedness of those positions, whether it's the frontline positions or perhaps five, 10 kilometers back, if Russia takes those front lines, you know, that's your soldiers' lives. So that's how well you can protect them is, is whether they, potentially whether a lot of them will live or die and, and whether also whether that territory can be taken or whether a Russian offensive will be stopped, just like the Ukrainian counteroffensive will be stopped. And so that brings us to the context of the war as a whole, right, where we really see, yes, for the next few months, for the foreseeable future, Ukraine will be on the defensive. And we don't know when some kind of window could open where Ukraine could attack again or, or how this war could, could develop through, you know, the back end of 2024 and so on. But I think what this is my opinion, but you know, this is what experts and soldiers have agreed with me said, like the most important thing for Ukraine now, whether it's we're talking about victory or a favorable negotiated settlement or just survival in general, the most important thing for Ukraine is an effective defense, an effective defense in which the lives of their own people are saved and maximum, maximum attrition is is dealt out on, on the enemy. And in, in that sense, I almost believe that like the concept of, of these fortifications and this new defensive phase of the war, as brutal and kind of morbid as it sounds, it's almost like an opportunity for Ukraine. Because in in an environment where Ukraine's own offensive capabilities have been kind of crippled at this point and and you know the Western support is is maybe under threat and and Russia wants to now go forward and take more and more. It's almost an opportunity like this is the one way to put pressure back on Russia to sit back and eat up those attacking forces at the highest rate possible. Kind of like it was in Bakhmut a while ago. Kind of like in Bakhmut, although in Bakhmut the problem was they were sur- surrounded from from three sides and then you had this debate. I think that was our first ever episode. Yeah, why, that's true. <laughs> why, yeah. why Ukraine is staying in Bakhmut. Yeah. But if you have a more straight front line and you have these prepared defensive lines, and you can just let them come at you and 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 let the pressure get back on Russia. You know, they need to mobilize hundreds of thousands more people. You know, they're 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 losing too many tanks than they can build and and so on and so on. And then that's that's a point where they might you can just imagine Putin's looking at the map and thinking, I I we, we can't we can't do it. We're losing too many guys. Where the, the Ukrainians are, are dug too well in. And that's I think that's completely a realistic scenario if Ukraine can get their act together. And so can we do that? Like, is there is there a plan to fix all of this mess? Is the government reacting? Are they acknowledging that, you know, this failure exists? Because as, as we all know, the first step to solving the problem is acknowledging that there is a problem. This discussion was prompted by the Ukrainian leadership finally making the decision they should have made months ago. So on the 24th of November, we had the the ministers of defense and digital transformation declare together that they were forming a working group to finally, you know, coordinate large scale fortification work. It's interesting that the minister of digital transformation, that he's involved in that. Yes, it raises a lot of questions, in fact. And some people I talked to said that According to their information, it was actually, you know, he's known as this super young, super progressive, uh, progressive active minister. And, you know, people have said that it was actually him who kind of pushed the other ministers, defense and infrastructure, and then pushed uh, Zelensky to, to start doing this. And that's why he is at the, the forefront. 
Like, um, this says a lot about how just how bad things are at this moment, to be honest. I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of how Ukraine works. You know, if, if you can't go through one way, you try and go another way. If, you, if the immediate formal line of, of responsibility and action doesn't work, but then you have volunteers, informal actors yeah. who are ready take it on and that kind of ukrainian style of business is also reflected in the details well they haven't given many, given many details of this plan but they've said that basically the first new line of defense will be constructed by the military because it's a lot closer to the front line and then the ukrainian state agency for reconstruction and infrastructure development will be responsible for the second and third and will do it together with private businesses and they've said that some private Businesses have already volunteered financing. Wow. I've never heard of anything like that, right? Private businesses volunteering to build military fortifications in the rear. It's really interesting. I mean, it's just another chapter in, in this kind of volunteer grassroots culture in, in <laughs> yeah, Ukraine, which is true. in many ways made up for the shortcomings from the government itself. But again, this project is such a high stakes thing. So you really hope that, you know, they won't mess it up. And then, and then after the announcement by the ministries, then you finally had President Zelensky himself say that he had a meeting with some of the most important stakeholders about fortifications. He said that they, they need to build them, especially on the hottest areas of the front line and including all the way to Ukraine's northern border with Belarus, because of course that is in many ways still a front line that Russia could one day invade from. So you can see finally Ukraine's leadership is reacting, is taking this problem seriously. And I think just this morning there was a, uh, or yesterday there was a video released of some of these fortifications being dug in the north of Ukraine near Belarus. But yeah, time will tell whether they can they can get it done at least to a decent level in the next few months. But again, it's winter. The ground is really hard. And so that that doesn't help as well. And you just think you could have started earlier. We're now moving to the community question of today's episode. As always, I'll remind you guys to please go to kimindependent.com slash membership to support our work. There is an option for a one-time donation and also monthly tiers of support for as little as $5 a month. You get really cool perks, including our favorite perk. You get to send us in questions before every single episode of the podcast, and we try to incorporate as many of them as we can. So the question for today is, the community member is wondering, is enough being done in Ukraine to boost domestic production of material, especially shells, artillery, barrels, small arms, mortars, etc. When you're fighting a war of survival, enough is never really enough, is it? And when the Western ammunition, artillery and ammunition, it, the flows of that are under threat, then of course you would want Ukraine's domestic production to step up to a level where it can compete with Russia. And, you know, we don't know the exact numbers. These are kept pretty secret. But of course, you know, of course, it can't compete with Russia. The domestic artillery infrastructure, you can see how Europe's struggling to up production. Ukraine only started producing 122, 152 caliber artillery shells during the, the start of the full-scale war. There's a long way to go. I think in answer to that question, I would place more attention on the issue of FPV drones. Because when I was near Avdivka in, in the hospital for one of the brigades fighting there, you know, the, the medics were already telling me 
that it was about 50-50 now between FPV drone wounds and artillery wounds. And every time we revisit the issue of FPVs, first people said, oh, they'll never replace artillery. And now more and more, it's actually starting to happen to the point where it's impossible to deny. So in a way, it's almost an opportunity for Ukraine to, uh, you know, kind of overcome this dependence on Western artillery supplies. On the other hand, the problem is Russia's doing it even more. And then you have the FPV, the electronic warfare battle that's going on. So to, yeah, to answer quickly, it's, it's not enough and it will never be enough. I mean, Ukraine just doesn't have the industrial capacity that Russia has. Like even if you eliminate, I think even if you eliminate corruption in Ukraine, if you eliminate all of the hurdles, like we, we, we don't have the same amount of resources one way or the other. It's, it's an order of magnitude of difference. Well, Francis, thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Also this week, a Russian missile attack against Kyiv during the early hours of December 13th injured 53 people, according to Mayor Vitaly Klitschko. At least 20 people were taken to the hospital, including two children. A massive cyber attack hit the largest Ukrainian telecommunications company, Kyivsta, and one of the country's largest banks, Manabank, on December 12th. On the same day, Ukraine's military intelligence, known as GUR, reported that Ukrainian cyber units hacked into thousands of servers of Russia's tax system, extracting sensitive information before destroying the tax database. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to The Cave Independent wherever you're listening to the show, and also go to caveindependent.com membership to support our work there with your donations. Also support us by following us on social media on Instagram, X, and Facebook. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.